Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Bing. Only Bing brings together the best of search with Facebook and Twitter. Try it today at bing.com. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 15, titled Then is Now, Now and Then wherein we discuss why we sometimes talk about the past in the historical present. Mikey, how you doing, man? I'm good, Bob. How are you? I'm good. I think we should tell them. Yeah? We're face-to-face for the first time. We are, for the first time in a long time. (laughs) See, we live in the same town. We live in the same suburb. And yet, when we do Lexicon Valley... Why uh, we do it from different studios yeah. through the miracle of uh, fiber optic technology. Yeah, and in fact, we would have done that this time. We had plans to record this on Friday. Your travel plans were delayed, so we postponed until Saturday. Then we got this crazy storm, knocked out power to your house. So here we are on Sunday, both together at Slate. Mm-hmm. We are in downtown D.C. I'm headed out of Lexicon Valley for a cooler climbs. What do we got today? I know you're excited about this show, but first things first, we've developed something of a habit in the last several episodes of reading iTunes reviews that contain a rhetorical device. Not too long ago, Pandiora wrote on iTunes, quote, excellent podcast where wit triumphs over sarcasm, insight over pretension, wisdom over minutia. Now, aside from that being a very generous compliment, it contains a figure of speech. Right. Can we focus on the complimentary part? That was very complimentary, and I couldn't agree more. Can you figure out what the figure of speech is? Not what it's called, but what he or she might be doing there. Uh, I don't know. It's a series of uh, parallel phrases, but I don't have no idea what they're called. (laughs) Well, if you notice, the verb in the first clause, triumphs, is omitted but Mm -hmm. implied in the subsequent clauses. Got it. So that's what the device is. It's called, are you ready for this? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Prozugma. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
all of these terms that you've been mentioning the last number of weeks as these figures of speech come in over the transom, they all sound like something else. (laughs) And this sounds like some sort of preparation that you buy direct mail at four o'clock in the morning to uh, make up for some sort of, you know, mail uh, deficit, say. I was thinking an acne medication, but (laughs) yeah, okay. Zugma is from a Greek root meaning to yoke, Y-O-K-E. The various clauses are tied together, in a sense, via this one omitted word. For example, Sir Francis Bacon wrote, prosugmatically, histories make men wise, poets witty, the mathematics subtle, natural philosophy deep, moral grave, logic and rhetoric able to contend. It lends a kind of rhythmic pace to a sentence and to a thought, really. This discussion, once again, proves my urbanity lacking my knowledge thin, my patience uh, (laughs) diminishing. I like it. Okay, today's show. I am going to play the moment from a show a few weeks back that suggested this week's topic. Okay. Here it goes. Now, Mike, uh, this is apropos of almost nothing, but the conversation we just had reminds me of a show I absolutely want to do, and it's about a tense that I call the present historical. And that's when historians and a lot of linguists and you speak of the past in the ongoing present. And Woodrow Wilson has a stroke. He leaves office temporarily. And when he – you know, that kind of thing. I've never understood why historical narratives have to be reverted into the present tense. And I want to get to the bottom of it. Is it a deal? Yeah, that's a deal. I didn't realize that's what I was doing. So I caught you in the present historical – And all of our linguists do the same thing. And over the years of interviewing historians, they all do the same thing. What's with that? Does it bother you when people talk about the past in the present tense? Well, does it bother me? It's just that I notice it. And I notice it because it strikes me as being sort of somewhere between a tick and an affectation. And I've always assumed more of the latter than the former. How generous of you. Well, (laughs) Mike, as you know... Thinking the worst of others, that's how I roll. (laughs) Sort of a hobby of yours? It's a gift handed to me by many generations of Garfields and Garfinkels before them. God bless them. Some people really are bothered by this. A woman named Laurel Brinton discovered this many years ago. Brinton works at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and one day went to the library there to check out a book for her daughter. She got Babar and the Professor one of the great French series of books about the elephant named Babar. When she got home, she noticed that somebody had marked up the book, which is somewhat heretical for those of us who are library patrons. Here's Laurel Brinton. And the reader had gone through and marked all of the present tenses as past tenses. So it says, one day Babar gets a letter from his friend, and this was crossed out, and it said, one day Babar got a letter from his friend. And, and the person went through for several pages and did this. Somebody actually, in pen, crossed out words in this library book and changed the present tense to the past tense. Yes. (laughs) They gave up after several pages, but they did do it for several pages. And then they wrote at the top of the first page, Warning to parents, the English language in some parts of this book is incorrect. And then someone else had written below this warning, 
further warning, and they point up to the first warning. Idiots like this are teaching your kids. <laughs> this book was written in the present tense. Thanks for ruining it with your, quote-unquote, corrections. <laughs> All right. I'm a little embarrassed about this, not because I am myself much of a language scold. If there's anything this show has taught me, it is not to be ungenerous about mutations in the language and non-conforming usage that finds its way into being accepted usage. So I'm not one of them, but our, our mail suggests that some in our audience are. And I think one of the reasons that Lexicon Valley has actually gotten traction is because there are a lot of people who pay very close attention and take very personally various linguistic trespasses. So I, I can't pass judgment on this woman because if I did, I would probably be passing judgment on 35% of the people listening to my words right now. I'm just saying. But I thought that's how you roll. <laughs> that's how I sometimes roll when I have nothing to lose by so doing. <laughs> so when the present tense is used in this way to describe a series of events that presumably already occurred, linguists refer to it as the historical present. Really? Yeah. So actually, I was making a joke about calling it the present historical. But you weren't far off. Yeah, even the blindest of uh, chipmunks finds a linguistic acorn some of the time. Sometimes it's actually called the dramatic present because in the traditional view, its function is to lend a kind of drama or vividness to the narrative. And within this traditional view, there are a couple of interpretations, and they're essentially two sides of the same coin. So in one interpretation, to quote a linguist named Deborah Schifrin, who has written about this, the historical present is used to increase the dramatic impact of the story by making the audience feel as if it had been present at the time of the actual experience, seeing events as they actually happened. The other interpretation is more from the narrator's perspective. To paraphrase Schifrin, the narrator becomes so animated by their own recounting of the story that they're, in a sense, reliving it with the present tense, as if the events, quote, were occurring simultaneously with their retelling, as Schifrin puts it. Mm. Yeah, because this would be so undramatic. George Washington's troops were freezing to death at Valley Forge. He had limited resources. He was surrounded by the enemy. On the other side of the Delaware were camped a hundred times more men than he had at his disposal. So what did he do? He chose to attack. It just seems so unnecessary to me. The past is dramatic all by itself. Why do you have to tweak it into the present? Well, that was the traditional view in the early and mid-20th century. Later on, especially in the 1970s, a number of academics were expressing dissatisfaction with that as a full explanation. And in fact, one woman at the time called it vague and pseudo-psychological, and a handful of sociolinguists argued that the historical present was deceptively more complicated than that interpretation suggested. Well, I suppose we should dig in on the very subject. But before we do that, before the emailers get to emailing, I have to confess that I actually have very little recollection of my history on Valley Forge and uh, Washington's invasion of Trenton or wherever it is he invaded in the <laughs> Delaware River while standing up very unsafely in that boat. Yeah. I was just sort of faking it. And so if you feel compelled to email me to tell me what an ignoramus I am, just don't bother. That's stipulated. That's for you, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Yeah, Doris. And if you do email to correct me, could you at least have the decency to describe the events 
as if they had happened in history and aren't happening right now? I mean, could you throw me a bone, Doris? I'm sure she'd be happy to oblige. So Deborah Schifrin, the linguist that I quoted earlier, tried to figure out more precisely in the 1980s how and when the historical present was used. To do this, she read through about 75 narratives. These are stories told by ordinary people that were recorded and transcribed by other linguists for unrelated purposes. She went through these narratives, essentially looking at the verbs. Now, when people tell stories, they usually begin with what linguists call the abstract, the purpose of me telling you the story. It could be just a sentence or two, like, oh my God, the craziest thing happened to me yesterday. Then they usually give what linguists call an orientation, the sort of who, what, when, where of the story. And then they launch into the kind of action or the plot of the narrative. Now, when Schifrin focused on that part of the narrative, the meat of the story, the part where someone is talking about how X happened and then Y happened and then Z happened, in those parts of the narrative, about 30% of the verbs were in the historical present far more than at any other point in the story. Well, you know, for starters, that's how we tend to recount anecdotes about ourselves, right? You may set it up with the preambular material, but then you immediately say, so I'm with Milena, and we get to the airport, and who do we run into but and so forth. Right, exactly. And Schifrin noticed that there was a kind of ebb and flow to the use of the historical present in that part of the narrative, and I'll quote from her. The most typical pattern is one in which the action begins with past tense verbs, switches after a few clauses to the historical present, possibly switches between the historical present and past a few more times, and then concludes with past tense verbs. Now, there's an episode of Seinfeld in which a character's toe is severed on the street. I'm sorry, can I just interrupt to say that your erudition never (laughs) ceases to amaze me? (laughs) You're you're going to be impressed with this. Okay, come on. Kramer finds the toe, hops on a city bus, and heads to the hospital so they could reattach the toe. Now, we don't see any of that actually happening, but after the fact, Kramer recounts the story for Jerry and George. Pay close attention to the tense of his verbs. After he heckled Toby, she got so upset, she ran out of the building and a street sweeper ran over her foot and severed her pinky toe. (laughs) That's unbelievable. Yeah, then after the ambulance left, I found the toe. So I put it in a Cracker Jack box, filled it with ice and took off for the hospital. You ran? No, I jumped on the bus. I told the driver, I got a toe here, buddy. Step on it. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. Then, all of a sudden, this guy pulls out a gun. Well, I knew any delay's gonna cost her her pinky toe, so I got out of the seat and I started walking towards him. He says, where do you think you're going, Cracker Jack? I says, well, I got a little prize for you, buddy. Knocked him out cold. How could you do that? Yeah, then everybody is screaming because the driver, he's passed out because of all the commotion. The bus is out of control. So I grab him by the collar, I take him out of the seat, I get behind the wheel, now I'm driving the bus. You're Batman. Yeah, yeah, I am Batman. Then the mugger, he comes to and he starts choking me. So I'm fighting him off with one hand and I kept driving the bus with the other, you know. Then I managed to open up the door and I kicked him out the door, you know, with my foot, you know, at the next stop. You kept making all the stops? (laughs) 
Well, people kept ringing the bell. <laughs> they kept ringing the bell. I mean, he starts almost entirely in the past tense. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, bit by bit, he goes into the historical present. Yeah, well, the pattern of Kramer's story is exactly what Schifrin identified more than a decade earlier. He begins in the past, switches to the historical present, switches back and forth for a bit, and then concludes with the past tense. He starts by saying, she ran out of the building, severed her pinky toe, I found the toe, put it in a box, took off for the hospital, jumped on the bus. Then he switches. Then all of a sudden this guy pulls out a gun. Why? Why does he switch there? It happens exactly where one bit of action intrudes upon previous action, and it's almost to create kind of like interior quotation marks to show that there's an episode within the episode taking place. That's exactly right. Remember before I said that a linguist back in the 1970s called the traditional interpretation vague. Her name was Nessa Wolfson. She was one of the foremost critics of the original somewhat straightforward interpretation. Tragically, she died relatively young in her 50s of cancer, but she argued that the change in tense, quote, functions to organize the story into chronological segments, to partition off events or points in the story from each other. Up to this point, the only event is Kramer having to get the toe to the hospital, right? Suddenly, the event changes to a guy pulling a gun on him, and that's when he uses the historical present for the first time. He's toggling. That's what he's doing. He's toggling between the past and the historical present. Yeah, and Nessa Wolfson wrote back in the 1970s that it's not the historical present itself that heightens the drama. It's the switch. You know, I don't want to confuse this at all, but there's actually a third way to relate material favored by valley girls and everyone under the age of 25 and i don't even know what i would call it the nearly verbless present and she's like oh my god you can't believe what courtney said and i'm all oh courtney is such a skank and she's all you know you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's another episode yeah we've got to be on that because it's fascinating okay let's take a short break and talk about our sponsor bing.com Bing and DoSomething.org are joining forces to kick off a national summer of doing designed to get people to give back to their communities for ideas on how you can help your hometown. Go to Bing.com slash doing to search for local projects. Bing ties together search and social. Now your search results include feedback from people that you're friends with on Facebook or that you follow on Twitter and Foursquare. With Bing, search gets more social so you can spend less time searching and more time doing. Check it out at bing.com slash doing. So the historical present segments the narrative into several discrete events. Other linguists have identified some functions that are a kind of variation on that theme. For example, it's been observed that the historical present is used often not just to segment the story, but more specifically to highlight or foreground an event that is Sudden, unexpected, important, or odd, to use the words of one linguist. Now, Kramer switches back and forth for a bit, but then he sustains the historical present for the part of the story that I think is arguably the most unexpected and odd. Then everybody is screaming because the driver, he's passed out because of all the commotion. The bus is out of control. (laughs) 
So I grab him by the collar. I take him out of the seat. I get behind the wheel. Now I'm driving the bus. Who wrote that episode? It was uh, Larry Charles. You know, based on what I've just learned, it's almost as if he were using that scholarly opinion as a template for how to have Kramer tell this ridiculous story. I know. It's unbelievable. It's as if he read the literature on his, the historical present. He read Schifrin. He read Wolfson. He read these linguists. And he said to himself, and I'm going to have this end with Kramer doing the entire bus route, bell signal and all, while rushing to the hospital with a severed toe. <laughs> but wait, there's more. I want to drill down even further. Kramer says, if you remember, I grab him. I take him out of the seat. I get behind the wheel. If you notice, he's using the simple present, which we almost never do to describe things that are occurring in the actual present, right? If you called me on the phone and said, what are you doing? I wouldn't say, I read. I would say, I'm reading. Yeah, but storytelling frequently reverts to the simple present. You get rid of all the participles and go right to the present for some reason. Is it because it's brisk? I get in my car. I run down to Home Depot. I say, do you have topiary shears? And the woman laughs at me. Well, in real life, when we're talking about the present, we use a mic not based on a true story. (laughs) (laughs) Not one of your other hobbies? No. no. Well, you know, in real life, we use the present progressive when we're talking about things that we're doing. But we often dip into the simple present when we're telling a story or telling a joke. So a guy walks into the bar. Wait, wait, wait. Are you going to tell a dirty joke? Yeah. How dirty? (laughs) We get the point. Guy walks into a bar. We often tell jokes in the present tense. Now, the argument is that the historical present is not really the present per se, but rather what's often called the instantaneous present, like with a magician or a play-by-play sportscaster, right? When the Yankees radio announcer John Sterling calls a pitch, he says, the 2-2 pitch is low and outside. When Brett Gardner hits a home run, John Sterling says, Gardner plants one. He uses the simple present. I'm beginning to understand this because, you know, you've explained how the historical present is particularly effective if you've framed the conversation with the past and then launch into it to tell the narrative. And I kind of get how it enables you to break episodes within episodes up into kind of discrete events. And there's a third thing, Mike, and you know, I'm beginning to come around on this. As we talk about this and as I dwell on it, I realize that one thing about the present tense is it assumes that the events are still unfolding, Right. There is no foregone conclusion. The conclusion is around the corner and you, you're you know, kind of expectantly waiting to see what happens, which is more or less the definition of drama, right? So if you talk in the past tense, you foreclose on that drama because what's implied is you know exactly how it all turned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this instantaneousness creates a kind of timelessness about when these events are taking place. As one linguist put it, the historical present represents an absolute or universal or indeterminate relationship of time. And yet it still gets under my skin. I, whenever they launch into it, you know what? I can tell you exactly how I, what my visceral reaction is. It's when street mimes have those pluses over their eyelids, like uh, Marcel Marceau. Who says that if you got to do mime to begin with, that you have to have the pluses on your eyes? Can't you do this 
your own way, a different way? Do you all have to look the same? And my question for historians and linguists is, do you all have to, you know, go for the same trope? Well, I don't think they do all go for it. You know, I think most historians tell their tales in the past tense. Oh, no, no, Mike, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that historians write their actual histories in the historical present. But when they go on TV or when they appear in person and they're lecturing, they absolutely default to this kind of stilted construction. I guess to answer the original question, yeah, it does piss me off. There are other people for whom this is an issue as well, and I'll get to that in a minute, and maybe it'll help you understand why you don't like it. But first, I want to get back to Laurel Brinton. She's the woman who works at the University of British Columbia who found the Babar book. Brinton is a professor of English language and a historical linguist. We've been talking about the historical present in oral narratives. Of course, it occurs also in literature. Brinton points out that Dickens is often cited as the earliest major adopter of the historical present in the English novel, and David Copperfield and Bleak House are usually cited as containing some of the best examples of it. But Brinton is a huge fan of Charlotte Bronte. She reads and rereads her novels all the time, she told me. Jane Eyre, Shirley, Villette, The Professor. And she noticed that Bronte uses the historical present on occasion in all of her books. And in fact, Jane Eyre was published several years before both Copperfield and Bleak House. Brinton identified a passage from Jane Eyre that illustrates, I think, very nicely the power of the historical present. There's a point in the plot where Jane Eyre is returning to Mr. Rochester's house after having been away for some time. The novel is in the past tense, then suddenly switches to the historical present. Jane Eyre is walking through Thornfield Meadows. Quote, I have but a field or two to traverse, and then I shall cross the road and reach the gates. How full the hedges are of roses, but I have no time to gather any. I want to be at the house. And I see Mr. Rochester sitting there, a book and pencil in his hand. He is writing. So it's her perception's almost undigested. I mean, you're there, and the narrator isn't interfering, so you're seeing things directly and perceiving them directly. It's a kind of subjective account directly from her. Yes, it's very subjective, so it's not an external narrator saying, this is an important event, or this is how it should be evaluated. It's the character, him or herself. So it's very internalized, Mm -hmm. and it's very subjective. All right, I hear Brenton, but this doesn't seem to have any historical nature to it. This is a moment of self-reflection captured for the novel's purposes in real time. It's a kind of interior monologue. It makes no attempt to recapitulate what has taken place before, much less lend drama to it. So is it even the same thing as we've been discussing? Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, the entire novel is in the past tense, with the exception of a few passages here and there. This is one of them. And again, it's not the historical present per se. It's the contrast and the foregrounding and the sort of instantaneous presentness of it. The British writer Philip Pullman 
wrote of that Jane Eyre passage that it, quote, works beautifully because it emerges from the context of a narrative told in the past tense. Jane's sudden use of the present conveys as nothing else could the pressure of her feelings as she recalls the high intensity of that summer evening, of her return to the house of the man she hasn't yet admitted to herself that she loves. I wonder how the biographers of Bronte would describe what took place in that passage. It would sound like Kramer's toe in the Cracker Jack story. <laughs> well, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, there were a few novels written entirely in the historical present. It wasn't until the 1960s that that as a very kind of conscious device started taking off. In 1959, Rabbit Run, John Updike's first book about Rabbit Angstrom, was published in the historical present and there were a series in the 60s after that, and it's become very fashionable in contemporary times to write entire novels in the historical present. Philip Pullman, the guy I just quoted, is a very outspoken critic of this, and I want to read for you precisely what his critique is, and I think this will help you sort of crystallize your own issues with the historical present. Pullman wrote in The Guardian a few years ago, If every sound you emit is a scream, a scream has no expressive value. What I dislike about the present tense narrative is its limited range of expressiveness. I feel claustrophobic, always pressed up against the immediate. I want all the young present tense storytellers to allow themselves to stand back and show me a wider temporal perspective. I want them to feel able to say what happened, what usually happened, what sometimes happened, what had happened before something else happened, what might happen later, what actually did happen later, and so on, to use the full range of English tenses. And he then likens it to the use of the handheld camera in cinema. When you do it throughout the entire movie, for him, it's nauseating. Hmm. And coming right back to where we started, really becomes not an artistic choice so much as an affectation, or at best, a cliché. And maybe, ultimately, that's what you know gets me when I see Michael Beschloss or... Doris Kearns Goodwin or uh, Doug Brinkley or any of the host of contemporary superstar historians on TV telling stories that they've written in the past but are narrating in the present. And it's like, come on, is that all you got for me? Come on, Doris, you can do better than that. As Lincoln's worrying about his general election, after Chase is pulled out of the nomination race, he lets Chase go to Ohio, leave his Secretary of Treasuryship to actually stump for him in Ohio, but he knows that what Chase will really be doing is stumping for himself. But he figures if he can make us win, if he can help this cause, I don't care if he gets more popularity. All right, Bob, I know you have a train to catch because you're headed up to New York to find some... Electricity. Electricity, yeah. If you want to write to us, you can reach us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes, where you can leave a rating or a review that may or may not contain a rhetorical device. I want to thank Laurel Brinton, professor of English language at the University of British Columbia, and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. Hey, Mike, are we, uh, we done here? Yeah, we're done. All right, let me know when you're going to turn off that machine. I, I'll finish that joke for you. <laughs> uh, right now. <laughs>